to the pod. It's Rochelle. We got a big, exciting episode for you today. One of my favorite topics, the autopsy. I was originally going to do one episode, but when I was outlining, there was just too much to talk about. So this is going to be a two-parter. The first episode here that you're listening to now, I'm just going to do a rundown of what an autopsy is, what the purpose of an autopsy is, and then I'm going to walk through the process, kind of start to finish of, yeah, doing an autopsy and what that looks like. So that will be what you're going to listen to next. And then part two, I'm just going to answer some questions about autopsies, kind of go through some of the stories of some interesting ones that I saw. And yeah, so that, that, that'll be next week. So stay tuned for that. But for now, let's just jump into autopsies, just a bit of like personal history with autopsies. I had always been fascinated with this kind of stuff. Like as a teenager, I used to watch these videos of this like German scientist guy on YouTube who would just do full, not like full autopsies as in like these were active cases, but he would have, it was essentially for like educational purposes and he would do dissections on real cadavers uh, to teach anatomy. And those were like my favorite things. And I (laughs) always wanted to attend an autopsy. So getting to attend them, also getting to participate and do one was like a huge moment for me personally. So yeah, I think they're really fascinating. I love talking about my time doing them. I estimate like, honestly, it wasn't a huge part of my time in the morgue. It was a pretty limited time because I was doing my practicum. And I estimate it was in between like maybe 30 to 40 autopsies that I was a part of. So it was definitely enough to get a good feel for for what goes on at them. Saw a lot of interesting different things. But yeah, we'll talk about that throughout. So let's just get started with what the purpose of the autopsy is. So might be a little bit intuitive, but it's to determine how and why somebody died. So What you're doing is you're looking at the body both externally and internally. You're looking for uh, signs of disease. You're looking for signs of injury. You're going through every organ, every bit of the body and recording everything because, yeah, a lot of people, when they're getting an autopsy, there is obviously suspicion about how they died. There are two different types of deaths, essentially, in the context of where they occur. So the first type is a hospital hospital death. So as the name suggests, these are when people pass away in a hospital and they're under the care of physicians, but their cause of death is still not understood. So an autopsy needs to be done to understand that. Um, And this can happen in all kinds of ways, but a lot of times, you know, it might be somebody seemingly is on the mend, they're having treatment done, it's going well and then all of a sudden you know it takes a turn for the worse and they and they die a lot of times the family the physicians they want an autopsy done because yeah they want to understand what happened and then that's their forensic pathologists are going in to find out and then the other types of deaths are community deaths so that's when again as the name suggests somebody dies outside of the hospital in the community they may not be immediately under the care of a physician Uh, so in British Columbia where I am we are in a coroner system so the forensic pathologist does not attend the death scene for these but the coroner will go to the death scene for uh, sudden or unexpected deaths in the community they will do the kind of initial investigation at the scene they will interview 
you know, any witnesses, family members, the police, paramedics, anybody who essentially attended the death scene to get as much information as possible. And then they are the ones who determine whether or not an autopsy is needed. If it's, you know, an elderly person and they fell in their home and it's pretty clear that they passed away due to the fall, then, you know, an autopsy may not be needed. But if it's a relatively younger person who didn't have any known illnesses or injuries, then an autopsy would likely be ordered because there's a lot of question as to how and why this person died. So that's just kind of the rundown of who typically gets autopsied. Not everybody does get an autopsy, as I had mentioned. There are some reasons why it's just not necessary. And a lot of times also the family might refuse to have an autopsy done. Um, In the case of uh, suspicious deaths, when somebody may have been murdered, obviously the family can't just decline an autopsy for that. But in, in a lot of other cases, they're allowed to refuse to have the autopsy done. So that's one of the reasons why Uh, Sometimes it's not done, even if the death isn't well understood. And then we'll just jump into now the process of the autopsy, my favorite part. What I would do is I get there about eight o'clock in the morning, go down to the basement where the morgue is, of course, (laughs) underground, and first change into scrubs because you don't want your clothes anywhere near uh, (laughs) what's going on in the autopsy. I also wore rubber boots because there's a lot of uh, fluids and splashing that goes around during an autopsy. It wasn't like mandatory. You could kind of wear whatever footwear you wanted. Some people just wore like those little kind of glove cover things over their shoes. One of the forensic pathologists I worked with uh, wore Crocs during his autopsies. So to each their own, I wore rubber boots. And the first step, once you get in, is you kind of see who had passed away over the last day, like who had come in overnight, essentially. And the lovely pathology assistants would lay out the charts and the coroner's report for each uh, person who came in. If it was a community case or if uh, it was a hospital death, then, you know, we would have their medical chart, everything that actually was gathered on them while they were at the hospital. And then the first step is just to review those charts to get as much information about uh, the deceased as possible before you go in. So we would review the charts, get all the information uh, given to us, and then we would kind of talk about what we would potentially see in this body or what we would suspect the cause of death to be based on the information. Sometimes we had very little information. Sometimes it was kind of obvious based on the circumstances of their death. So for example, somebody was at a party and was found like non-responsive, kind of suddenly otherwise healthy. Your mind kind of goes to, okay, this might be a potential drug overdose. So we're just kind of getting some ideas going before we start the autopsy. So once we had that conversation, the next step is the external exam. So we would unzip the body. They would always be like laid out for us already on the autopsy tables, again, by the forensic pathologist assistants. And then we would do the external exam. So essentially all you're doing with that is checking over for any immediate signs of injury, bruising, contusions of any kind. Uh, Sometimes it was immediately obvious. Um, For example, some Somebody was in a car accident and had some pretty like graphic injuries, 
bones poking out of skin kind of thing. So obviously you want to make note of that. Um, we're taking pictures throughout this process as well. That was often uh, my job uh, at, at the beginning was to take these pictures. And then, yeah, you're just kind of making notes of generally anything of note. The morgue I was in was quite old fashioned. So we literally had a chalkboard that we would take our notes on. And also one of my jobs when I was starting out was just taking notes of whatever the forensic pathologist was noting in his external exam. Next step, we're gonna... We're going to start cutting into the body, <laughs> to put it very bluntly. So a lot of you may have seen some variation of this in like TV or movies, but we would start with what is called a Y incision. Or in this case, at the morgue I was at, we would often do what was called a high U incision. So first, a Y incision is kind of what it sounds like. It's given its name because of the shape of the Y, but you essentially do two incisions at the clavicles on either side, meeting in the middle on the sternum, and then you do a one long incision down through the abdomen to the top of the pubic bone. So it's just line, line, meet in the middle, straight down. So that's the, the Y incision, but for what we did often, and again, this is just kind of preference based on what forensic pathologists training they have, but we would do a high U incision. So for these, instead of starting at the clavicle, you start two high incision points just below uh, either ear and then you go you kind of loop down and meet in the middle at the sternum and then same thing you kind of go uh, cut down uh, to, the, to the top of the pubis through the abdomen so what you do then once you've kind of made those incisions you start reflecting back the tissue the skin so you're usually taking forceps and then your scalp on the other hand and you start very carefully layer by layer flaying back the skin. And the reason why you want to be super careful for this is a lot of times there might be bruising or injury or just something of note in each layer, like in between the skin and the fat, the fat and the muscle, you know, you just don't want to miss anything. So you're trying to be as delicate as possible, clean as possible, you know, nice and long, confident incisions. These, This was always the, the advice I got. It's like, you don't want to do a bunch of little baby cuts. You want to do nice, big, clean, confident cuts, which is nerve wracking when you're like cutting into a person. You kind of want to be like a little bit delicate about it, but you can't. You just kind of have to go for it. And it's a balance between that and, you know, not missing anything or cutting into something that you're not supposed to, because of course there's all kinds of uh, vasculature. And even if you nick one of these, all of a sudden you got blood and it's not great. So you're reflecting back the skin so that you then have access to the rib cage. So for the rib cage, what you want to do is to grab a pair of gardening shears. That's that's what we used. Um, there were so many everyday items that you would find around your house that were used in the morgue that have been kind of forever tainted by their uses. But yeah, we would essentially grab a pair of gardening shears and then you start clipping the cartilage along the ribs. And then that's so that you can, one, not cut into the actual rib because when you cut ribs, they fracture and they create these really like sharp jutting out pieces on either side. So you want to avoid that because you're going to be reaching into the chest cavity. And if you have like sharp ribs poking at you, you might tear your glove, you might, you know, whatever. You just want to avoid that as much as possible. So if you're cutting on the cartilage, it kind of creates a nice clean outline to then remove 
the chest plate. So once you get that off, you want to inspect the inside, make sure there are no uh, broken ribs, bruising, anything like that. A lot of times people who would come in had CPR done on them prior, either by paramedics or somebody at the scene. And if you're doing CPR correctly, if you're doing chest compressions uh, correctly, you often actually will crack the ribs in order to get the full pressure on the heart that you need to. So that's you know noteworthy because if you find fractures on the ribs, we like to refer back to the notes, like were paramedics on the scene? Did they perform CPR? They did. Okay, good. So we can kind of write that off as like, these are classic resuscitation fractures. They're kind of found in the similar places uh, on each person. But if they didn't receive CPR and they have these cracked ribs, all of a sudden it's like, okay, why do they have cracked ribs? Did they fall? Were they hit? You know, then you have to kind of start going further into why that is. And then you have the chest cavity open. So again, there are variations between forensic pathologist to forensic pathologist in terms of exactly how you start uh, removing organs. But first you want to do what's called an in-situ examination. And essentially all that means is you want to take a general look of how all of the organs are sitting as they currently are inside the body before you start removing everything out. So you want to just make sure there's no immediate anatomical differences or discrepancies that are noteworthy. You want to note how much blood is within the chest cavity. And I know you might be thinking, it's like, oh, well, you just like cut into the chest cavity. Of course, there's going to be a lot of blood. And to a certain extent, yes, there is some kind of leakage of fluids that ends up pooling at the bottom of the chest cavity. But too much is actually indicative of injury, uh, like bleeding prior to death. So what we would do is <laughs> taking household items that are forever ruined, a metal ladle, like kind of a soup ladle, and you would just scoop out uh, the blood and measure how much is in the cavities. Some is pretty normal, but for example, during my first autopsy, we opened up the chest cavity and it was like immediately shocking how much blood was in the chest. Like we, I think we, I don't know how much, but we ladled out like pitchers full of blood and it ended up being uh, connected to the cause of death. So once we opened up the pericardial sac, which is just like a, a thin sac that surrounds the heart, it was filled with blood, like so, so much blood. And that should not be there in a, a healthy person. Even if they died, if you open the pericardial sac, there should just be the heart, but it was flooded with blood. And the cause of death was actually something called cardiac tamponade, which is essentially when there's so much blood in the pericardial sac that the heart cannot fully contract and it disrupts it and then there's like heart failure. So anyways, it is important to note how much blood is in there because again, it could be indicative of how this person died. So anyways, you're kind of just taking again a general examination in situ as things are. And then you start taking out what are called blocks of organs. First, you're kind of taking out the heart, the lungs, and going up the like the esophagus and tongue as well. So this is where the high U incision is helpful because you're like reflecting back all of the skin of the neck to access the yeah the esophagus and you want to pull out the <laughs> this is kind of graphic but I guess if you're listening you're already okay with this but yeah you're pulling out like the tongue the esophagus the 
heart and the lungs kind of in one large block. And you, there are like, you know, obviously things you need to isolate, cut off to get this block out, but you want to kind of do it in one big swoop. So once you take out that block, you move down to the abdomen. The abdomen is kind of kept closed for as long as possible because as you might be able to imagine, a lot of the smell comes out of the abdomen. <laughs> a lot of the bad smells that come out of autopsies originate from the abdomen because that's where all the bacteria, well not all the bacteria, but the most of bacteria is. And they immediately start devouring what is in the abdomen as soon as the person dies. So a lot of times when you're looking at a body, if it's like, you know, maybe say a few days into their death, they've already started to decompose, you will see signs of decomposition first in the abdomen. So oftentimes there will be bluish, green, green discoloration in the abdomen and this is from the bacteria immediately starting to break down and then there's also often distension of the abdomen because gases are being released as the decomposition process goes on it's kind of distending out the stomach and then you're getting a lot of smells <laughs> so luckily at my job my most recent job at the morgue we had something called a downdraft table so that is where there's active suction down as you're opening the body and that's really nice because it's bringing the smell down with it however at this hospital like i said it was an older place so we did not have downdraft tables and it was just pungent smells as soon as you open the the abdomen okay moving on you get it it smells bad so you're opening up the abdomen the first thing you'll see and this is often not shown in autopsies in say like tv shows and movies but it's called the mesentery and this is like kind of a thin layer of fatty tissue that it's like kind of like a sheet that covers the internal organs for protection that's often not there a lot of times in like tv show and movies you open up the gut and it's like immediately there's like the large and small intestine and like you can see it all zigzagging back and forth. That's not what you immediately see when you're opening the abdomen. First, you kind of see this like layer of, of fatty tissue that you want to reflect back, but it also is connected in and throughout the large and small intestines. So what you want to do before removing the intestines is first you tie it off. And the reason for that is because there is often poop inside the intestines throughout the whole track. So you don't want that leaking out. It also smells. You just want to try to keep it as clean as possible as you're removing it. And you don't want it leaking out throughout the rest of the abdomen as you're trying to dissect out these organs. You're tying it off at either end, clipping it out. And then you kind of like take the, the intestines in one hand and the scalp in the other, and you're just detaching it from the mesentery as you kind of run it along. And then you take it out in one big thunk. <laughs> but in the abdomen, there are a lot of different organs in there of course there's the liver the pancreas the kidneys uh, the stomach itself you want to check the stomach contents so once you, that's removed I remember one autopsy I did there was like pieces of hot dog so it was kind of like a last meal kind of thing but that was interesting but a lot of times honestly it is just like the bile gross non-identifiable fluid but sometimes the stomach contents will be tested if there's some suspicion about maybe if they ate something or at the time of their death that might have contributed to their death but anyways same kind of system you just want to remove out all of these organs and then one thing that is often depicted in tv and movies that is correct is there's kind of this like hanging scale like grocery store scale 
that you want to weigh each organ on as they're removed. So first you want to like isolate them. If you're bringing them out in blocks, you want to isolate each individual organ and you're just taking note of them because there is kind of a normal range of weight for certain organs and to be less or over um, could be indicative of disease. So for example, there was a one heart, I don't remember how much it weighed, but it was huge. And this is actually a condition called cardiomegaly, which is essentially just means a large heart. And having a large heart actually increases your risk of sudden death by 25%. So in the absence of any other findings, having cardiomegaly can be considered enough to be cause of death if they did seem to die suddenly with no other explainable pathological findings. So again, you're just weighing all the organs, taking notes of any discrepancies or anomalies in how they look or feel. And then same kind of thing, you're just uh, inspecting all of the insides, making sure there's no weird bleeds or anything like that. And then once you have everything kind of out, this was another one of my jobs that I would often do was you have to take serology. So serology is for taking toxicology. So you can send these samples to the lab to get tested for any bad things that chemicals and whatnot that might be found in these uh, samples. And there's three different fluid samples that you want to take from the body. One of them is blood. So once all of the abdominal organs are removed, there you have easy access to a really big fat artery called the iliac artery that runs along the pelvis. So it's kind of easy just to you take a syringe, stick it in there, draw out some blood, uh, put it in a vial for testing. And then also once the abdominal organs are removed, you also have easy access to the bladder, which sits along the wall of the abdomen. So it isn't taken out with uh, the rest of those organs in the block. So you just stick a needle into the bladder. Sometimes it's a little tricky because obviously not everybody has a full bladder when they pass away. So they might, you might only get a little bit, but you're trying to kind of fish around in there to get as big of a sample as you can. And then last but not least, I had mentioned this process in a previous episode, but you need to get something called vitreous humor, which is the fluid within the eyeball. So that was always the weirdest part for me because you have to hold the eyelid open and you take a syringe, you have to stick it right into the middle to get enough fluid because again, there's not a ton of fluid in there, but you need to get enough for a decent sample. And then, yeah, you're just kind of trying to like hold open the eye and they're like, staring at you while you're doing it is not a very pleasant process but very much necessary and then yeah you get your three samples and that's the main dissection part for the core of the body and then of course the last but not least big organ is the brain so that's kind of its own separate process you have to dissect the scalp and kind of peel it up and that is also a gross thing because it's essentially like peeling a very tough orange and it kind of sounds the same as well. Um, and yeah, so you just like cut low enough that you are taking into account that this person might have an open casket funeral. You want to avoid making incisions in such a way that the funeral homes are not able to cover it. So you're doing like a lower incision on the scalp and then peeling it up. And then you just take a regular old bone saw and cut out kind of a, a section of the skull. And then you want to delicately pull out the brain um, again, I had mentioned this before, but the brain is one of the quickest organs to start decomposing because it's already such soft tissue. So 
you don't want to be like reaching in there and like grabbing it with your, you know, hard fingers because your fingers will straight up just like puncture it. And you want to avoid that as much as possible because if they had a brain injury or something, your finger messing it up in some way could make it difficult for the pathologist to identify that. So you're separating the brain from the dura, delicately kind of cutting off. There's a few different attachment points. You want to cut low into the spinal cord as possible. So you get a bit of a section of the spinal cord with removing it. And then you, you pop it out. Uh, there's also something called the pit, which is the pituitary gland that kind of sits in its own little nestled spot within the confines of the skull cavity so you have to kind of break off a part of the skull to remove the pit but and then you look at that as well and then once all of the organs are fully removed that's when the pathologist dissects each organ looking for individual instances of disease injury etc so each one is you know intricately dissected out the heart is you know each different vessel is cut into to look for signs of atherosclerosis Sclerosis, which is when there's like plaque inside of the artery or veins throughout the heart. So you're just looking through those in, in every organ. You're also taking uh, samples for slides for molecular and or genetic testing and for closer inspection under the microscope. Because that's actually another big part of the forensic pathologist's job, which is to take samples of the organs and look at them under the microscope because some disease processes are identifiable on a molecular level. So you need to check that out because sometimes the cause of death can be found microscopically and not grossly. So as in... There could be a completely negative autopsy, which actually would happen quite often, which is where you complete a whole autopsy and there is no discernible cause of death found. There was nothing that, you know, heavily indicated how this person might have died. And often in those cases, the cause of death will either be found in a slide, through genetic testing, or through toxicology. A lot of times it would be a drug overdose or something like that. But unlike the TV and movies, you don't get toxicology back in two minutes. <laughs> it takes like four months. There's like a huge backlog. So a lot of times it would just be like negative autopsy. Okay, guess we'll wait for toxicology in a few months. And you know, it takes a while. So yeah, but that's about the whole process. In general, an autopsy can take anywhere from 45 minutes. If it's like a pretty straightforward case, if it was say like a hospital death, not super decomposed, you just kind of, you know, stepwise go through it easy peasy. I was also at a few homicides and those ones took up to six hours. Those ones were brutal because you're just like, standing on your feet, you know, you're taking pictures of everything, you're collecting evidence during the autopsy, which takes extra amount of time. The police are present during it and they're like breathing down your neck while you're doing it, which doesn't help. So yeah, those ones, you know, you're obviously looking for absolutely everything. If there's like bullet wounds, you know, you have to like track the trajectory of the bullet. You have to remove it from the body if it's still in there, you know, so there's a lot more steps in a homicide investigation. So, but I would say on average, it was about one to two hours if it was a pretty straightforward one. I was lucky enough to attend, like I said, about 30 to 40 of these 
I was among really amazing people while I was there who like taught me so much throughout the process. So if anything, that's why they took a bit longer is because it wasn't just like we were do-do-do going through it. They were taking the time to stop and like describe things to me, which was like honestly my favorite part. I learned so much while I was there. Um, and I was among pathology residents. So there was a couple on rotation that were learning how to do autopsies. So these are people who are already doctors, but are in their training to be uh, pathologists. So they might not become forensic pathologists, but they do need to do a rotation to learn how to perform autopsies. And then there's also the pathology assistants who are there who help with the evisceration process. So I know that's like a brutal word for what happens, but the evisceration of the body is like the dissecting, doing the high U incision, removing all the organs that is considered evisceration. So the pathology assistants would actually do a lot of that. So yeah, usually there was about, uh, I would say three to four of us uh, present for an autopsy. And then of course, like I said, sometimes the police are present, sometimes the coroner is present, but usually it would just be if there was a homicide and they would kind of run down the crime scene with us and go through the details of that, but then wouldn't really stick around for the actual autopsy. They would just be available for questioning if needed. And that's about it. That is the autopsy. It's a pretty wild thing to be involved in. It's, it's, something I'll I'll never forget. I, I took a bunch of notes during my time there of the different autopsies I was at, and I still remember a lot of them really clearly. Uh, like I said, in the next episode, I'm going to go into some of the like specifics of some of the interesting cases I saw, obviously, while maintaining anonymity of the deceased. But yeah, I will, I'll talk maybe a bit about the homicide cases, you know, what do we do with bodies that are disfigured beyond recognition? What is my favorite organ to remove? You know, stuff like that. But I hope you found this interesting and informative. If you have any questions or things that you want me to cover on next week's episode that's also in, in the realm of autopsies, let me know. Because, yeah, again, though I, I can't pretend I'm an expert. I am not a forensic pathologist. I was only there for, like I said, a, a pretty short amount of time. So... I by no means am an expert in what happens in an autopsy, but I just so happen to spend a little bit of extra time understanding the process because I wrote a paper also in the realm of forensic pathology afterwards that kind of made me dive a little bit deeper into the process of performing an autopsy and what goes into doing an autopsy. So can't say I'm an expert, but I have, you know, read into this and experienced a decent amount that I do like talking about it and answering any questions I can. But as always, I love to hear your feedback. You are so inclined to leave a review if you haven't already. I would love that. Follow along, follow, subscribe, etc. if you haven't already. So these episodes will come right into your phone box to listen to <laughs> each week. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Rochelle Uni. And yeah, I guess that's everything for now. Thanks again for listening if you made it this far. Stay safe and stay alive out there.